This is episode 15 of One Page at a Time, Holy Script, Sacred Texts in the Home with Drs. David Dalheit and Lauren Marks. Podcasting from Virginia and Dubai. This is One Page at a Time, where we bring you strategies and resources for using books in your home. We are your hosts, Jill and Amanda. This is Amanda. And this is Jill. And today we have kind of an interesting and different interview. It kind of stemmed from a little bit of a selfish place. So both Amanda and I are pretty religious, and um, we kind of had this curiosity about our scripture reading, our religious reading with our kids and how that related to just kind of this bigger picture of reading at home. So Amanda went out and she found a couple experts for us and and it's it's really interesting information. And they have been studying, so these two professors have been studying families who are active in all different kinds of faith, different Christian denominations, but also different religions other than Christianity. Um, because pretty much every religion has texts that they use in their faith. And um, so they have they have done studies for years with these families to kind of see what that what that activity in their faith does for them as a family. And so part of that, of course, is using those religious texts. So we get to talk to them about that today. And they have some really good insights and really good ideas for us from all these years of studying. They really do have some great perspectives, and we had such a good conversation with them. So currently, Drs. Dalahite and Marks are both located at Brigham Young University in Utah, and it's a religious university, and both of them are also family members, and they have such a strong and unique perspective through the American Families of Faith Project and also through the research that they do for the school itself and just their experience with their families. So it's a great, great interview. I'm really excited. We're just going to jump right in because it's kind of a long one. So here we go. We are fortunate to have two doctors with us today. Both of these gentlemen are fathers themselves. They are professors of family studies at Brigham Young University and lead a research project called the American Families of Faith Project. Welcome, Drs. David Dalahite and Dr. Lauren Marks. It's good to be with you both. Thank you. Can you describe what American Families of Faith does, the kinds of research that you do with this project, and maybe even give a quick background of the Family Studies Department at Brigham Young University? Sure. In the School of Family Life at uh, BYU, we study a variety of topics in marriage and family and parenting. And uh, Lauren and I focus in particular on religion and marriage and religion and family life. And the American Families of Faith Project has been going on for about 18 years. We've interviewed uh, so far about 280 families in uh, 33 states across the country. Uh, families from a variety of faith backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds. We typically interview married couples, and then we, in many cases, have also interviewed their adolescent children along with them. And then we, we've we got about 10,000 pages of transcripts from uh, from those interviews, and we have spent many years uh, with a number of students and colleagues going through carefully to see what those folks who are highly involved in their faith communities and are, and are strong families, what they have told us about how their uh, faith and their family are connected. And so we have published a number of articles in uh, mostly scholarly journals and psychology and sociology and family studies and religious studies that uh, provide some information about the ways that highly religious families integrate their religion and their family relationships. Lauren, do you want to add something to that? One thing that a unique feature of the project is that we focus on strengths. What makes these families strong? A lot of social science focuses on pathology or weakness, why things go wrong. And it's a delightful experience to learn from these mothers and fathers and youth about how they overcome challenges and how they've built strong relationships. So can I ask, what made you interested in the religious aspect of this, of the many different ways that you can construct a community? Why a religious community? Community. What what is the um, I guess the difference between a religious group or community versus a demographic a different way? 
for in my case, both professional and personal reasons. Professionally, there's been a number of studies in the social sciences over the years that have documented uh, using large national and international samples that have documented a number of relationships, significant relationships between those who tend to be more religious and a number of positive marriage and family relationship factors. So, uh, for example, the research shows that more religious couples tend to be less likely to be unfaithful to each other, more likely to have a happier marriage, more likely to stay married and and not divorce. The research shows that religion benefits children and youth. There's all kinds of health benefits, mental health benefits, relationship benefits. So the, the scholarly literature is really quite overwhelming across decades and across hundreds of studies that have documented that religion does have a positive relationship with happy relationships. And so our project wants to look at why and how that works. Most social science research is quantitative research that does survey methods. We have gone out and interviewed folks, spent you know a couple of hours, sometimes three or four hours with these families to learn from them. You know, they're the experts in their lives and we've wanted to learn from them what it is about their own particular faith, their beliefs, their practices, their religious communities that have made a difference in their family life. And then the personal reason is I have observed in my own faith life, in my own family life, that those um, folks who take their faith seriously you know, for example, I didn't mention what I should have mentioned, an important research finding that a lot of these studies show that families, uh, individuals and couples who go to religious services on average at least once a week tend to do measurably better than those who don't go to church. Okay, So just being involved in a faith community tends to make a real difference. I've observed that in my own life and in the lives of those in my own faith community. And so I, I think that uh, the, you know, both the professional and the personal reasons have led to my interest, interest in this project. But Lauren may have some other thoughts. I think you covered it well. As you're talking about how lives are better with religious activity in family, what does better, I guess, look like? It's an excellent question. Uh, I think we're both we're both pondering a, a response that fits the question. I'll jump in. What yeah, do you think? Go ahead. So uh, the research has documented dozens of variables that are positive related to religiosity. In the in the mental health domain, it includes things like greater happiness, greater sense of purpose, less depression, less anxiety, greater sense of peace. In the relationships area, it's included things like higher marital quality and marital satisfaction, better ability to solve marital problems, higher levels of relationship commitment. In the parent-child area, it's documented that religious parents are less likely to abuse their children, more likely to spend time with them doing positive things. Um, the, the youth, the number of studies are focused on youth. Youth in more religious families tend to be more likely to share parts of themselves with their parents that are important and meaningful to them. There tends to be less parent-child conflict in more religious families. There tends to be a greater likelihood that they will be able to deal with difficult, stressful challenges and difficult uh, situations in their life. So those are just a few of the many variables that have been that have been tested across the social science literature. In our case, we've done about 70 different studies documenting uh, you know these same kinds of things and other kinds of benefits for for families. Not just taking their faith seriously, but doing so in, in what we think of as more healthy and positive ways. Now, there's ways to be highly religious that is um, that are positive and functional. And unfortunately, there are ways to be highly religious that are more toxic, more uh, likely to lead to you know, problems and resentments in the home. So we, we tend to focus on the positive. To follow up in terms of your better question, I think it's very important to note that most of the benefits that have been noted uh, have been noted in shared faith families where the mother and father share religious beliefs and practices. That's something that we'll be happy to address a little bit later. In interfaith contexts, it's it's uh, more challenging. And so there's a unique power, it seems, when beliefs and practices are shared in the marriage and in the family. Interesting. How do religious texts and sacred texts play into that? And maybe I guess we should start with defining what is a sacred text? You know, different folks in different faiths obviously consider different texts to be sacred, and each faith has their own list of things that they consider to be sacred. And uh, for Muslims, it's the Quran and the the deeds and the writings of the Prophet Muhammad, the Hadith of Muhammad. Uh, for Jewish families, it would be the Torah and the Talmud and other 
religiously oriented books for Christians. Obviously, the, the Old and New Testaments are important uh, for Latter-day Saints, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenant. So each faith has their text that they consider sacred. And what we discovered was folks approach how they study their sacred texts, how they as individuals and as a family group spend time with their sacred texts in various ways. Uh, some do so on a daily basis, others on a weekly basis, others uh, you know, less often than that in terms of how and where in the home they read sacred texts together or listen to sacred texts together. Again, great variation. What we observed is it's not so important. Well, all of the families that we interviewed are engaging with sacred texts in one way or another in their homes and families. And many of them refer to sacred texts as they would talk about how their religion helped them and, and, and made a difference in their relationships. They would refer to their scripture as a guide, as a, as a model, as a, a standard what we observe that really matters is, and this is one of those those interesting commonalities across faiths, was whether a person was referring to the Quran or the Torah or the New Testament or the Book of Mormon. It was what they were referring to was the Word of God, was sacred writing, sacred experiences that mattered to them, that were important to them and relevant to them, and that they considered to be a standard whereby they should try to live their life. Something I would add, a dear friend of ours, who's also a family scholar, shared with me at one point as I was talking about here with him about some frustrations I had as I tried to gather our our five children together for sacred text uh, study in our own home. He, he offered the reminder that the the process or how you engage in the study of sacred texts may be as important as the fact that, that you're doing it. Uh, that's kind of the other side of the coin of what Dave was talking about. In other words, if if it's exciting, if there's a warmth, if there's an engagement, a nurturing atmosphere, that that is critically important. Uh, this is not just simply a box to check. And I think that the the families who benefited most from the sacred text study together, there was a, an eagerness about it, an openness, a dialogue between parents and children that was uh, that was rich and that was meaningful, as opposed to uh, let's make sure we just plow through a set number of verses, uh, let's make this bland and, and ritualistic, that there was a, a vibrance that was evident. Hmm. And I imagine that this would be important to start as your children are young so that it becomes a habit, truly a tradition that's within the home. But in, in my personal experience, my young children, especially with my toddlers, they really struggle with the vocabulary, the symbolism, the language. As our family has tried to use religious texts and to build a tradition, how have families found ways to use these challenges in the text itself as teaching moments to turn it into this dynamic and engaging uh, conversation? with young kids or even with older kids who just aren't interested? It's an outstanding question. I would say it's important to note that although developmental psychologists see many, many aspects of childhood through different lenses and, and different ways, a point of consensus is that zero years to six years window is viewed as the most important developmentally by every major developmental psychologist in terms of both research and theory, that's a, that's a critical window. Also, the human mind, the developing mind, is capable of far more than many parents and individuals realize. Little children are brilliant. They're built to learn. They're built to develop. And I think that more often we underestimate our children as opposed to, to overestimating them. And children can rise to remarkable challenges. So I think even at a young age, with some, some guidance, some enthusiasm, some uh, explanation, and perhaps most of all, some story, some narrative from parents, children can, uh, can quickly gain some depth in their faith tradition that would be surprising to many. If there is a perfect developmental activity to engage in with your young child. It may be reading a book to uh, your child while, while he or she sits on your lap. They're getting physical contact, cuddling. That releases oxytocin, which helps in brain development and emotional development. They are gaining cognitive developmental opportunities by hearing words and translating those into pictures 
and images in ways that television can't challenge them. And if you add to that equation spiritual texts, they're also getting some spiritual development uh, there as well. And so particularly for those parents that have a kid under six, I would just say there's nothing quite like looking through a good illustrated version of the sacred text of your faith tradition uh, with your child on your lap. If they'll only allow it for two minutes, take the two minutes. If they get fascinated and will let you go for five or ten, all the better. But if there is a better activity to, to help your child develop in multiple dimensions at the same time, I don't know what it is. What if my child is over the age of six? <laughs> is it, are they a lost cause? <laughs> Is there hope? We have written in some of our work about how, even though it's true that in years zero to six, the foundation is laid, that uh, there's explosive building upon that foundation in later childhood and adolescence and even on into emerging adulthood. And, and so my experience has been that a reward for, for trying hard to, to grind out uh, some of that really difficult work that, that you both uh, expressed to us earlier as young mothers, um, when, when children start to hit later childhood and early adolescence, they will ask questions that are, that are stunning and striking and make the dialogue uh, more, more, uh, more rich, more interactive, and that's when payday kind of uh, begins, I think. Dave, what do you think? So I think um, my own observation and experience, and I think the, the research is consistent with this, is that what really matters most in those early years is to build uh, a close relationship with your child, that your child knows that you love them, they trust you, they feel um, safely, securely attached to their parents, and so, in my opinion, that sort of attachment, those relationships, that is so crucial in the early years. And then as parents and their growing children over the years come up with different activities, different ways to do things, different rituals, traditions, routines, all those things evolve over time as children grow and develop, as new children added to the family, as life circumstances change. Uh, the idea that some people have is that you you start a tradition and then you keep it that way forever. Well, you might keep certain, you know, the idea that you are going to, for example, pray together as a family or that you are going to take time each day to to read, to listen to, to to um, engage somehow with sacred text. That's what matters. It's it's the ritual. It's, it's the relationship. And then exactly what's done, exactly how that works. Uh, evolves over time. That's for each couple and each family to decide together as they move along. Um, I'll just give an example of, of our own family. We tried a variety of ways of engaging with sacred text over the years, and some of our children would have, well, okay, one of our children would have really liked for us to get up very early in the morning and do a little religious devotional that includes sacred text. First thing in the morning, you know, five in the morning before she went off to her job, uh, before she went off to school when she was younger, she's a morning person. She's the only one of our seven children that was a morning person. The other six children uh, would, you know, we, we tried this a few times and they complained mightily. They resisted mightily. They um, fell asleep. In our case, after trying a few different things, we settled on what worked wonderfully for our family, which was each night at dinner, after dinner, before dessert. So, you know, between dinner and dessert, we would pull out our sacred text and we would each read one verse. We'd pass one copy of that book around the table. Each person would read. Thus, we had about three to five minutes, sometimes longer if we had a, a nice conversation. And that, that, that occurred now and then. But that was not the expectation. That was not the demand, let's say. Uh, it was that we did it. We, we read together. We, we acknowledged together that we valued God, that we valued sacred texts, that we valued each other uh, and our relationships enough to take time to read sacred texts. And uh, you know, each child as they came along, you know, the younger ones um, sort of learned how to read 
in some ways by doing that. And, and everyone was patient. My father uh, lived with us for 17 years. He was an atheist, uh, uh, didn't, did not belong to our faith community, did not believe in God, did not believe that the, the text that we were reading was, was in any way, shape or form, uh, the word of God. And yet to be part of our family, he took his turn and he read the verse. And so in, in our case, that worked nicely. Um, yeah, not everyone was always thrilled all the time when we took time before dessert to read sacred text, but it was short enough uh, that um, that it wasn't a, a burden on anyone. And that you know that was a, a positive thing for us. And for me personally, as I think you know back on that, I know we're now my wife and I are now empty nesters, and, and we just had our family with us uh, for much of this month, uh, various family reunions, and as we talked to the kids. You know, as, as I think about those those years, um, it was worth it. It was a good thing to do. Um, it's not the same thing that other people would do. It doesn't matter what other people would do. It's not the same thing that we always did. What mattered is that we did it when our kids were really kind of in those influential years. And, you know, the idea that, you know, we would sit and, and eat good food and pass good food to each other, that was nice. The idea that we would pass the word of God, you know, the, 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 the scriptures that mattered to us, around the table to each other, that was a, a great way to, to finish up dinner. So so my main point is each family has to sort of be creative and intentional in finding the way to go about uh, engaging with sacred text in their family, and that may well look nothing like what any other family does, and that may well change over time. We actually have conducted a, a study that addresses conversations between youth and parents that uh, I'll ask Dave to address in a moment, but I, I will say um, quickly and upfront that based on personal experience and, and our own research, again, when there's an open dialogue, that is, that is what seems to be richest and best. Uh, in terms of a poor model, I will tell you that, that following some uh, really engaging scripture studies that we had in our family, which again involves five children of various ages, uh, at, at certain points, there were rich questions that were asked by them. And then that tapered off for a while. And I asked, I asked my children, you were asking great questions a while back. You're not asking as many questions now. And why is that? And they said, well, dad, it's because Every time we ask a question, you'll ramble on for two or three minutes instead of giving us a, a short answer. Um, and that was instructional to me to be very careful about making sure that this is a dialogue and interactive and not dad climbing up on his soapbox and getting too preachy. Uh, that's not appealing to kids. Yeah. So Laura mentioned that one of the studies we did was with um, the ways that parents and their adolescent children talk together about religious things. And there's a lot of findings there, but just in the interest of time, I'll just focus on one or two brief ones. The main uh, finding from that was that both parents and youth said that they enjoyed the conversations uh, about religious matters more when they were initiated by the youth, when the parents were not uh, as Lauren just said, not too preachy, when the parents were uh, able to find a way to relate the idea of the conversation to the lives of the youth. So it wasn't just sort of abstract uh, theological discourse, but it was how um, a, a, a verse in scripture or a story in scripture, for example, might apply to the actual life of the, the youth themselves. The youth really appreciated it when the parents were brief and uh, I'm thinking of one uh, um, family where the daughter, who is, I think, 13 or 14, said something like, well, it's hard with dad because everything has to be about religion. He can't talk about anything, even like my math homework, without bringing up religion. And it just drives me crazy. And when she said that, uh, her sisters and brother and her mom and her dad all nodded enthusiastically realizing that, yep, that's a problem dad has. He needs to, you know, back off, needs to uh, uh, cut to the chase a little better. And so I think um, what what uh, what we would suggest is that parents, obviously they're children of different ages, of different interest levels, of different personalities, different temperaments, different, you know, all kinds of, of, of issues. Parents need to be really sensitive to those kinds of things and not simply 
uh, impose the parents' ideas and the parents' time frame onto the, um, in this case, you're focusing on sacred scripture, you know, uh, allow as much as possible the youth, the children, to have a say in what happens, when it happens, where it happens, how it happens. Uh, and that will, in the long run, lead to uh, more positive experiences for both the kids and the parents when the kids are are, uh, are really involved in deciding what's going to be done, when it will be done, how long it will be done, and so forth. My older children are in adolescence. And given the stage that our children are at, I would try to resist the urge of engaging in exegesis or explanation and just ask the kids, what does that mean to you? Have, have you seen an example? If so, would you share it with the family? And I think if, if we were patient and gave them 15, 20 seconds to reflect, that one of them probably would. Uh, and that if one did, that that would stimulate some, some experience sharing and story from others. Uh, I think that if I were to tell them what I thought it meant right out of the gate, that that would probably stifle instead of enrich the discussion that followed. That's a that's a tendency I've had to check and, and I'm still trying to learn how to check in myself as a parent. Give your children the chance to lead out. Uh, don't portray yourself as knowing all the answers. Um, value their opinion, their take, and their experience. Along those lines, I think, uh, at least as your kids get older and become uh, curious and and somewhat informed you know, themselves as, as they've read uh, their scriptures for a time and thought about, they will often ask really, really good, challenging questions. And uh, I also, like Lauren, have had to check my tendency to uh, provide a, an answer or the answer. And I've learned that if I can remember to say, well, that that's a great question, honey. What do you think about that? Um, or that's a great question. I, I really haven't thought about that too much. I have, I have maybe an initial thought or two, but I, I don't believe that it's the right answer. It's just my current way of thinking. Uh, what do you think? Or I don't know. That's a great question. Let's take some time. And together, would you like to take some time to try to find an answer? My own experience is when I have um, not punted the question back, but uh acknowledged it's a great question and been uh, humble and open and and um, relational in my approach to that, uh, it's, it's almost always turned out to be a better uh, conversation and a better learning experience than if I just, uh, you know, give a preachy or, uh, or, or a supposedly, you know, right answer to that question. Okay, that's so when, as both of you were talking, I, I got the image that of, you know, in different families, a dynamic conversation is going to look different between different kids and their parents, different ages. And within, a, even within a family, this is going to look very different. Are there resources, animated scriptures or um, other things, you know, with illustrations or movies, or are there things that parents can kind of do to get that interest started? It's a great question. Um, I think all those kinds of, of uh, creative uh, resources that you mentioned and, and others, um, you know, audio books, and, and there's a variety of ways to, to help study of sacred texts be more interesting, more meaningful, more exciting, more enjoyable for youth and, and children, and, and I think those are great. I don't think there's any substitute, however, for taking some time, uh, even if it's one verse, even if it's telling a, a story. And by the way, the idea of reading sacred text, uh, there, there, there's people who read sacred text, and there's people who read sacred text with energy, with enthusiasm, with with joy, with, with, with a, a kind of a, a tone in their voice that will call forth more interest and more willingness to listen. And obviously with younger children, uh, you know, reading long sections of sacred text is probably not going to work. It's probably going to lead to, uh, to ineffective uh, uh, 
sessions is probably going to lead to boredom and resentment. And so parents who can you know, act out the story. I remember when my kids were young, at one point we acted out the story of Jonah and the whale and I was the whale and I came over and I kind of gobbled up the younger kids. And then I frankly, you know, kind of threw them up on, on the, uh, on the beach, so to speak. So, you know, we, we acted out and we acted out a lot of things. Lots of families act out the Christmas story. That's great. There's lots of other stories that are really fun to act out with children. So I would just encourage parents to be creative, prayerful, and intentional given who are their children and how old they are and their interests and, and what's available and find ways to make it so that it's something that kids look forward to, that kids remind the parents about. You know, Most kids will not let their um, parents get away with just putting them to bed without reading or telling a bedtime story. You'd like, you'd hope that you do sacred text in a way that the kids would be asking for it, you know, so that if it got forgotten, the kids would miss it and would uh, would suggest that it occur. Perhaps we need to have a little bit of planning as parents ourselves as we're getting into this. Have you found any examples of how to prepare to use sacred texts or how couples can prepare together or maybe even engage older siblings with younger siblings to make it a family, sort of a cohesive family conversation? I think certainly uh, showing your children respect by clearly preparing uh, before you discuss texts is, is one way uh, to teach and to teach with power and to teach well. Another, and in fact, our, our families that we've interviewed have talked about this over and over again, is that the most powerful teacher is example by practicing what you preach. And as I look back and reflect on what sacred texts meant to my parents, that lesson was probably most powerfully conveyed to me by seeing them taking time to sincerely study texts, uh, sacred texts on their own. Um, not, you know, opening their bedroom door and seeing them with, uh, with a Bible open uh, and pondering. Um, and I think that the power of example, particularly parental example, cannot be overstated. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to digest that a little bit. Um, I do want to bring the conversation. I had missed a message. Jill and I are talking on the back end here as well. And she had a follow-up question about preparation, if we could go back to that. Okay, so first of all, I, I really appreciated the thoughts on um, our own personal example for our kids and, and taking that time. I know that I, I, I feel like sometimes I can only do my own personal study and reading when like, I have downtime, which is almost never. And so to have that reminder and that confirmation that, no, I need to use that time and it's okay to take that time away from my kids and to, to sit down and do that own because it will be benefiting them as well. I'm not really, you know, abandoning them. I'm not ignoring them. I'm benefiting them by giving them that example. Um, but the, but the, where I struggle would be, I am, I love reading. I read a lot for fun and for entertainment, but I'm not a naturally really studious. I don't, I don't get a lot of joy from digging into subjects and unless it's something that I'm really excited about. And so my, my question would be kind of if you had any thoughts or encouragement to parents who are trying to prepare and who are trying to have that foundation themselves so that when it is time to read these texts with our children and with our families, that we are ready when like ha maybe what some thoughts on that preparation could be. So I'm looking to Lauren. He's looking to me because he's the one that he's the one that went off on the little uh, example uh, riff, and that's his area. That I, I don't focus on that near as much as he does. I believe that talking about it and having good conversations—that's where the rubber meets the road. He believes the power of example. So uh, I'm going to give him. I'm kind of just stalling here to give him a minute to come up with what he wants to say. I personally would say to you, Jill 
that I don't think that a young mother, a mother of young children has the time to do all the things that she, she would love to do and, and, and might think that it's good to do. And so I wouldn't personally put any type of a burden on a young mother and say, you know, you need to make sure that you're, you know, taking time to do this. If that's what you feel to do, if that's what you feel is best for you and your relationship, great. I personally wouldn't uh, ever try to impose that uh, because you've done tremendous preparation in your whole life leading up to the stage of life that you're in. You're in a season of life where your your life is not really your own. Your time is not really your own. Your children demand so much of you in terms of time and energy and and, and all of that. And so I personally would say that you've done enough thinking and reading and listening over the years of your life that you can uh, ask the Lord to help you call forth those ideas, stories, verses, whatever that would be best for your children in the season of life that you're in. So that's what I would say. And then now Lauren will say something probably truer and better and wiser. But Personally, I'd tell you, don't stress about reading scriptures on your own. Just go ahead and be with your kids. <laughs> you know, it's interesting in the Jewish tradition, Torah study is expected of men. It's not expected of women, uh, particularly mothers. There's the implicit understanding there that as important as the word of God might be living it out and rearing the the next generation trumps any activity. And I think that many of them would say amen. And that that would be my hope that that, uh, some listeners, some of your listeners will not feel overwhelmed by us suggesting that studying sacred texts is something that might be optimal for them and their kids, but that they would say, hey, that that special experience that's had every once in a while, if you grind it out, I think that might be worth the cost of going through the mundane, you know, the mundane repetitions that you seem to have to go through to get to the mountaintop sometimes. But uh, I think Dave and I would both say there is something very special about those mountaintop kinds of experiences that can carry a parent through through really difficult times. Amen. From this, I, I want to come back to what Lauren had said earlier about mixed religion or mixed religious families where the parents do not share religion or or, you know, the children or whatever. So I can see how using this approach, making the conversation open to everyone in the room and to not really reflecting your own things, how this would create an environment that would allow people to be very comfortable and no one would get defensive and no one would be on the offense. And what a difference that can also make, especially if there are multiple religious beliefs within your family. If you don't share the same religious views, how, how can you interact with each other and still have positive experiences using sacred texts? Dave and I have discussed in the past the reality that even in a family where the wife and husband attend the same faith community and read the same texts, their views are not identical. Their practices, their approach, their worldview are not identical and sometimes are quite divergent. In other words, in one sense, every marriage is an interfaith marriage. And if you're going to to weather uh, an interfaith marriage well, there is a modicum of respect that you need to develop. And I think whether you attend different churches or one attends a uh, a faith community and one does not, that an attitude of, well, honey, here's my take if you're talking to a child. Here, here's my view. But I'd be really interested to hear your mother's perspective as well. She always sees things that I don't see. Uh, that kind of an additive, unified approach where you acknowledge that there are other perspectives that are valid and not just one zone. An embracing of diversity of perspectives, a complementarity approach as opposed to a contentious approach. Uh, we have, we've seen that modeled in many of the families that we've interviewed where there's a, a deep respect for other views. And that's something that, that you can teach your child by example as well. Dave? Yeah. The idea that uh, even in Couples and families where everyone uh, is is in the same denomination of the same faith community, 
the idea that they're all going to see things uh, the same and, and feel about things the same and understand and interpret a verse the same, uh, going to believe that uh, how that verse might be implemented should, you know, th- that they're going to agree on that. That's just anyone that's been in their family for very long knows that that's a, a highly unlikely case. Sure, there are some uh, families in which uh, for some happy accident, uh, everyone just seems to see things the same way, but th- that's pretty rare. In most families, there are, and most marriages, uh, there are significant differences. And and Laura's point is that whether they're, whether you're in the same faith or an interfaith, it's the way that you think about and relate to your spouse and your children, your siblings and your parents. That's what really matters. And uh, you know, we, we've both seen folks who are highly involved in the same faith community who have very significant differences in how they interpret and believe their faith should be lived. And the issue is, how do they deal with those differences? Do they do so with kindness, with with respect, with patience, with humility, uh, with love and long suffering? Or do they get on their high horse? Do they get self-righteous? Do they get judgmental? Do they get preachy? Do, you know, so I, I think it's really important for anyone who's trying to live a life of faith in their home and, and in their family relationships to approach uh, all aspects of that faith in ways that the faith themselves teaches, which you know, faith, almost all faiths teach people to be patient and loving and humble and kind and not to be arrogant and, and dogmatic and, and so forth. So, uh, so I, I think it's more about the relationship, how it's nurtured, and that's going to lead to better relationships. And in the long run, the research uh, shows adult children will say about what made the most difference to them in terms of whether they decided to sort of continue on in the faith that their parents uh, raised them in or not. Uh, It was more about the quality of the relationship with their parents, more about the degree of warmth that their parents showed toward them. That's what really mattered. And uh, you have some families where there's a lot of religiosity going on, but there's not a lot of kind relationships. And those kids tend tend to run like the wind from religion in general or from the faith of their parents. Whereas in families where there's warmth and love and kindness and patience and understanding, um, those kids are far more likely to decide to continue on with the faith that their parents uh, raised them. Wow. And there we have the perfect segue for kind of the final question. As far as the parenting aspect of using religious texts, what would be your your hope from the audience that they could do this week, sort of their one takeaway? Well, that's a hard question. Each family is um, in a different place and, and they're each dealing with different challenges. And I guess what I would hope would be that each couple and each parent might um, prayerfully consider the way that they are engaging in sacred texts personally and in the relationships that matter most to them in their marriage and, and in their parenting and ask whether if what they're doing is is enough is is uh, is appropriate for the time then then just to feel a sense of satisfaction that uh, the efforts that are being made to to engage with sacred texts are right for that family at that time and also to be open to the possibility of ideas from god and in conversation with loved ones uh, open to to ideas that perhaps uh, some slight adjustment, uh, a little bit more or a little bit less or a little bit different might be worth trying and seeing how that goes. Each person and each couple and family, I believe, needs to be open to growth, to change, to perhaps transformation. If, if nothing is happening in that area and the effort is going to be to try to start something up from scratch, that, that's going to be difficult because starting things from scratch for most people is not as easy as, as uh, uh, you know, gentle tweaks and what they're already doing. But but some, for some people, for, for various reasons, they're, they're not engaging in sacred texts in a way and at a level that in their uh, family might think would be ideal. And so making some change might be appropriate. But there's no one right answer for everyone. The idea that you, know, you could give a speech or a sermon and say, you should all try to do more. You should all, you know, whatever you're doing, double it. Or whatever you're doing, you know, do more. I think that's not helpful. I think each person, each couple needs to be thoughtful and engage in conversation with those they love 
about where they're at, where they'd like to be, and and consider uh, whether making a change might be helpful or just staying the course might. And Lauren, do you have anything to add to that, or are we missing anything? During our conversation today, we've talked quite a bit about ideals, about hopes, about you know best case scenarios, and I think it's really important for any listener to come away with this nonfiction message. Dave and I both value the study of sacred texts very highly personally and and as a family. But with that said, a few years ago, I broke down. I had just called my kids down for scripture study and for family prayer. And it it was like herding cats. It was a disaster. And it's very important, I think, uh, on the heels of ideals for the listeners to know my failure rate in terms of failure to to reach the top of the mountain in both personal and and family sacred text experiences it's got to be 90 to 95% and if you're doing better than that, please give Dave and I a call and, and tell us how, how how to kick that percentage up out we're we're not the experts here we just realize it's so important to try and that the benefits from trying are profound enough that it's worth it uh, for for those times that do go well. And in some ways, even when you fail, which is most of the time, to have a deep spiritual experience, you are showing your kids, even though this is hard, even though this is frustrating, even though we just went through the motions tonight, it still matters so much that we're going to do it anyway, kids. I would want to leave that with our listeners. I really appreciate, I I could still keep going and talking to you guys. Can you tell us a little bit more about where our listeners can find out about the American Families of Faith project? So um, those who would like to learn more about the project, there's a couple of uh, possibilities. One is our website, uh, AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu. We also have a, a book that we wrote called Religion and Families, written by Lauren D. Marks and David C. Dollahite, published by Taylor and Francis Rutledge. And that provides a summary of uh, many of the ideas that we've shared and, uh, and w- is, was written for a young adult uh, audience. It's written as a college text, but it, it's not textbook-ish in the sense of being uh, focused on kind of picky little ideas. It's We tried to write in a way that, that we thought was, was going to be engaging for a millennial audience. So the website and the book are, are two resources. Lauren, do you have other suggestions? Those are the two top ones. Well, thank you again for your time and help us better use religious and sacred texts in our family. So thank you very much. You're welcome. We're both delighted to try to help. We're honored that you'd invite us and hope that your enterprise of your podcast is a great success. Thank you. So, Amanda, that was a lot of information and and a lot of good ideas and stories from their own personal life, which is so good because they both have quite a few children between the two of them. And so the fact that they probably have seen a little bit of everything when it comes to studying with their kids Uh, has been really helpful for me to hear those stories. And honestly, to hear a little bit of of that realness where they admitted that they actually didn't get it right a lot of the time. And it was this process throughout all of their raising kid journey of figuring it out and and to have a little bit of, you know, be kind to yourself and as you're trying to do the same thing. It's so true. It's and religion is something that, or worshiping is something that is so hard to meet expectations that you might have of yourself. And talking with Lauren and with David just really helped to help. It helped me to put into perspective the fact that it's all in the effort. I love that Lauren spoke at the very end about ideals. And I think that with the expectations that we have on ourselves that we often place on ourselves, there's not a whole lot of grace allowed. At least in in my case, I don't give myself the grace that is kind of ironically absent <laughs> since we're talking about religious 
things here, but I feel like this conversation is going to be a great starting point for me to take a step back, reevaluate the way that we read scriptures and sacred texts in our family, and to give myself that grace and just a little bit of breathing room. So I'm really grateful for this conversation. Me too. And I definitely agree with you. And and definitely one of the parts that stood out the most to me was um, when they were talking about preparing as parents, you know, now we're in this adult role and we're trying to work with our kids. Um, and one part that I especially loved was when Dr. Marks was talking about um, the preparation that we do as parents and, and trying to, you know, study ourselves and be ready for these questions and things that our kids are going to have when we're reading these texts. Um, but he mentioned using the preparation that we've done leading up to this point. And I think I, I sometimes discredit that preparation because I have. And I think also it's a great, great idea that can apply to other parts of our lives too. We're talking right now about, about religious study, but there's other things that I've done throughout my life. And I have worked hard throughout my life to learn things and to grow and to have new experiences. And right now I'm limited in this phase of my life with my family. I'm limited as to what I can do myself to to grow myself and grow my intellect and grow my um, my curiosity. But I can rely on what I've already done and what the experiences I've had throughout my life. And that was a perspective that I hadn't thought of. And I so appreciated when he said that. And hopefully other people can feel that as well. Oh, that is such a good point. I had not even thought about that. But it's so true that it it does apply to other areas of our life that we've done a lot of preparation. I can think of just offhand when you said that, I thought immediately of music and how that has played a, a role in my life and my parenting, especially that, you know, I've done a lot of musical lessons and things in the past and, you know, years worth. And it it really does accumulate into something and we often discredit that and don't even think about that. So that was... Or we think that we can't use it because we don't have time to practice right now. Like you probably don't have time to sit down and practice the piano all that much right now these days. Am I right? No, no, I really don't. And so I think for those types of things, you know, I'm not actively, you know, building on it right this moment in my life because I just don't have the time. It's not possible. It's just not possible to do that right now. But that doesn't mean that the 20 some odd years of lessons that I already did don't mean anything. They're still there. They're still there and we can use them. So good. I love it. Well, we're going to wrap up this chat here with a few recommendations for where you can find out more information about this subject because this is, it's a long interview, but it's really only the tip of the iceberg. And we, we kind of broke our rule. We try to keep these interviews shorter, but this was just impossible to condense down into something I mean, we're already missing a ton of stuff that that if you're interested in this, you can definitely read as much as you want on it. So be in the show notes and on our website. Speaking of the website, we would love for you to check out our website. It's kind of tricky to find right now on Google, to be honest. And if you know anything about how to fix that, please send us a message. But um, if you type it in, it's www.1onepagepodcast.com. Head on over there. You can find our episodes. You can find the blog posts. All of the show notes are there with pretty pictures and links to take you to Goodreads and other really great resources. Anything that we've mentioned in this episode. We hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. And